G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story she showed me this photo album and I was looking at all the people that I recognised, you know, much younger because these photos were quite old. And there was this one girl there and I said, oh, who, who's that girl? And my friend said, oh, that's my sister, my older sister. I was like, oh, where does she live? I haven't met her. And she said, oh, she, she's not here anymore. I said, well, what do you mean she's not here anymore? And she said, well, um, she went to the river one day to wash her clothes and she never came back. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Penny Reeve is the author of several books for children and young adults, but her goal is to get her readers to go beyond just passively reading books. She wants to challenge them to engage in the world and calls them to action. One topic Penny's passionate about is human trafficking, a topic she became painfully aware of while serving as a missionary in Nepal. Today, Penny will share the events in her life that have shaped her into being the type of writer that challenges readers. She's having a chat with Eric Scatterbo. Penny Reeve, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. Glad to have you with us. And I should say you're joining us from your home in the Sydney area. Yep, I live in St. Mary's in Sydney. Okay. Well, we want to find out about the events in your life that have led to you writing the way that you do. Mm. Where did it all begin? Yeah, well, I think I've always loved books and, and just mm-hmm. been surrounded by books. But um, my parents were missionaries. As I was growing up, they were with Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which some of your listeners probably know mm-hmm. about. Yeah, where, and, where were um, you located? Yeah, well, we were located in, in North Australia for um, oh, okay. most of the time. Mm-hmm. But we also did two years in Dhaka in Bangladesh mm-hmm. and also in Papua New Guinea. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mum used to read me stories all the time. And um, when I was seven years old, we lived in, in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And um, my mum used to come sit on my bed every night and she'd read me a few chapters from a book. And one of the stories that she read to me was um, Patricia St. John's uh, Treasures of the Snow. Do, do you know that one? No, I'm not familiar with that. It's uh, Patricia St. John was one of the first um, sort of Christian writers for children and she wove themes of faith into her fiction really, really well. And um, Treasures of the Snow is, is a story about forgiveness. Mm. And I remember sitting under the mosquito net in, under the ceiling fan in Dakar and my mum reading me the story and just mm. being struck yeah. by my need to be forgiven by God. And um, I remember saying to mum, you know, mum, I, I want to be forgiven by God. I want to have that relationship with God. I want Jesus to come into my heart. And she said, well, you can. We can pray right now. And so we prayed. And that was the day that I, I gave my life to, to Christ and became a Christian. I remember it really vividly. And yeah. Well, isn't that yeah. interesting that you're a writer today and you became a Christian through somebody's writing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a story that I share when I yeah. go to speak at schools mm-hmm. um, because it really fascinates the children that at the same time, about the same age, was the time I wrote my very first picture book at school. And, and I do, I, I look back and I wonder, you know, how, how God weaves our lives together and puts yeah. things together. Yeah. Yeah, that's very I, I interesting. I don't think it's a mistake at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So what happened yeah. from that point? 
So, yeah, so that, that's when I came to faith when mm-hmm. we lived over there. And then my family returned to Australia and um, we returned back up to Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory and we lived there until I was about 14. I remember one day having a chat with my dad and mm-hmm. saying to my dad, you know, when I grow up, I want to I be a real missionary. And he sort of looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he was a pilot and an engineer for MAF and he, I think he was chief pilot at that time in Gove. And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you're just a pilot. You're not a real missionary. <laughs> and he said, he said, what do you think a real missionary is? And that really got me thinking. And, and he explained it to me that, you know, a missionary is someone who, who makes the word of God available to others, who invites them into the kingdom. You know, and, and whether you're a doctor or whether you're a preacher or whether you're a pilot, you can still do that because it's God that makes the difference in people's lives. And um, I remember the conversation really, really clearly. And it just, just really impacted the way that I started growing up mm. and pursuing what I was going to do in life. I had a real early sense that I wanted to make a difference in this world mm-hmm. for God's kingdom. So he kind of yeah. broadened your perspective on what a missionary is. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you could say. Yeah. And yeah. then you started to write? Well, yeah, I think I was writing the whole way. I wrote all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. I wrote masses of soppy poetry that I have since destroyed um, <laughs> you know. um yeah but it wasn't it wasn't until my daughter was born so I, I grew up i studied teaching and i got married and, and my daughter was born and then people started giving me books to read to my daughter mm-hmm. christian books just christian like bookshop. what happened for you yes yes mm-hmm. except that these ones i didn't like <laughs> oh you became a bit critical i did i did <laughs> because the god that i knew and the God that I had seen at work in the various places where I'd lived and the God that I had met in the Bible was not what I was seeing in these books. Hmm. I was seeing um, a sanitized, childish sort of depiction of God. I thought, hang on, we're talking down to children. Children can handle the fact that God is amazing. Children can handle the fact that he is trustworthy. We hmm. don't need to make everything playful. and Playful is great, but not at the cost of truth. Hmm. And so I, I thought, maybe, you know, maybe I could buy something better than this. <laughs> oh, okay. And so, so that's when I actually started writing with the aim of publication. I never actually believed I could be a published author, ever. I thought, that's what famous people do. That's hmm. not what ordinary people like me do. But that was when I really started sitting down and actually deliberately trying to see if I could craft children's books that would teach the wonder of God in a fun, engaging, and real way. Yeah, and so I, I, I wrote a whole bunch of manuscripts and I tried to find a publisher. And at that time, uh, there was no Christian publisher in Australia that was willing to do children's books. Is that right? Um, yeah. No children's publishing, books? Publishing children's books is really expensive because of the illustrations. Oh, okay. That was in the year 2000 and there wasn't anybody here doing it. One of my random contacts said, why don't you contact this publishing company in the UK called Christian Focus Publications? Mm-hmm. And so um, they gave me a name. So I packaged off some manuscripts and sent them off to this name. Turned out that guy was in charge of distribution. He wasn't even the editor. <laughs> but he, ma- he happened to hand my package of manuscripts to the children's editor in Scotland. And uh-huh. she's turned down two of my ideas, but one of them she, she liked. And oh. She said, can you turn this into a series of four books? Oh, and wow. uh, that became my first set of children's books called God Made Something and yeah, Fill in the Blank. What was the basic message of those books? Yeah, so they ended up being four books. God made something strong, God made something clever, God made something quick, God made something beautiful. And then basically each book looked as an animal, mm-hmm. like the, the elephant is strong, but God is stronger. 
And so they were comparing the characteristics of the animal with the characteristics of God, and God oh. always won. You always came out better. Yeah. And so little kids get to the end of those books, and the, every book says, and who made this animal? And the little kid chimes, our great God. So, so a very a, simple but yet profound message for children and for all of us. Books. Mm-hmm. Yes. But yeah, and they continue to be sold today, that series. Great. And then eventually you moved to Nepal? We did, yeah. So about the time that those books were coming out, Mm -hmm. my husband and I and and our young daughter, we moved to live in Nepal. So I didn't actually see those books for a long time because uh, at that time Nepal was experiencing quite a bit of persecution towards the church and so it wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, appropriate for us to receive Christian material through the post or anything. So... The rest oh, of the wow. world saw my books before me, before oh, somebody wow. carried them in to show me. Well, yeah. How ironic is that? Yeah, it's God's way of keeping me humble, I think. So what, <laughs> yeah, so what led to you and your husband and your family moving to Nepal? So I grew up in a missionary family, and my husband had been a missionary in Papua New Guinea. That's kind of how we met. And so we both had a view of continuing to serve overseas, mm-hmm. and we really wanted to serve the poor. So we worked with Tier Australia, and they sent us as field workers to work with International Nepal Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And my husband was the accountant, and I say that he kept the hospitals open because <laughs> uh, he made sure that they kept getting their funding and made sure all of that was happening. Yeah, all the practical and, um, stuff. Yeah, all of that. And and I cared for my young daughter, and we got involved in the local church and got involved with the community and learned some language and. We had a lovely time in the middle of a civil war. Yeah, a civil war. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we arrived about a month before the Royal Massacre, which some of your listeners might have heard about in the news when the Nepal royal family was all assassinated by a member of the family. Yeah. And that was a huge event that just Mm -hmm. really shook the nation. And at the same time, the Maoist army were, there was a civil war going on and quite a lot of unrest. And so we were sort of living in this sort of touch-and-go scenario in Nepal for quite a while. Some people might say you kind of moved into a hornet's nest or something like that. Yeah, it was a bit like, you know, the frog in the frying pan. Hmm. We got in when it was pretty warm, and we stayed there while it was getting hotter and hotter. Oh, wow. So we, we left Nepal literally two days after the revolution. So we arrived in the Kingdom of Nepal, and we left the Republic of Nepal. So oh, okay. it was a very huge time to be in Nepal. Uh, any incidents that happened that kind of would let us know what it was like living in those conditions? Yeah, well, we would often be just at home and the whole town would be shut down. It's called mm. a bond, a strike. And um, no one was allowed to go out. Shops had to be closed. No one was allowed to be driving around. And mm-hmm. so the town would just be very, very quiet. And you would have helicopters flying over b- above and you'd look up and there'd be machine guns pointing out the window. And um, I remember one day seeing my daughter, she, was, she climbed up on some sacks of, not sure what they were, sacks of dirt, and she was peering over the big, tall rock walls that surrounded our property mm-hmm. and, and our landlord's property, and she was peering out watching protesters march by our house. <laughs> I was like, Lillian, get down, get down. It's not safe for you to be up there. <laughs> well, that's yeah. something she'll definitely remember for the rest of her life. Yes, yeah, she does. She, she's still not quite sure why I wouldn't let her look. Was there any danger of if you were just looking? 
I think it was just probably considered rude, given the fact that we were visitors in that country. Oh, okay. We needed to be respectful mm -hmm. to the political situation that was going on. And, uh, you know, when people are protesting um, and, and rioting for things, they can be quite hot-headed. Oh, yeah. Things that they don't mean to do. So it was just a matter of just being sensible and yeah. safe within yeah, that yeah. context and respecting what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just be on the safe very side. significant events mm -hmm. taking place that needed to take place, but... Did you fear for your safety? No, I don't think so. I think uh, we were very aware that that what was going on was not aimed at us. Like I said, we were visitors and the conflict was not about us. Mm -hmm. It was more just whether it was appropriate for us to remain or whether something might happen that would impact us by accident. Oh, okay. Like, should we be in the wrong place at the wrong time kind mm -hmm. of deal. We would sometimes wake at night to hear bombs going off when someone was blowing up an office or oh, wow. those sorts of things. I would routinely walk the children to their little school. We'd walk past a tank and we'd walk past sandbag machine gun. Oh, wow. You know, it was just part yeah, of life. I'm just you know? thinking it's a far yeah. cry from life in Australia. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> to say the and least. And so, so returning when we returned was pretty massive because of all that. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Penny Reeve, the author of several books for children and young adults. Penny is sharing with us the events in her life that have shaped her into being the type of writer she is today. Next, Penny will share more of her story and how she became aware of the evils of human trafficking. All that and more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Penny Reeve, the author of several books for children and young adults. As we heard before the break, Penny wanted to be a writer since she was a little girl. Next, Penny shares how she became passionate about the topic of human trafficking and how she's calling her readers to action. While you were in Nepal, God was kind of shaping you, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think I went to Nepal as a young, naive missionary. I was, I was pretty young mm -hmm. um, when we headed off. And um, I thought, you know, I was going to change the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, being there and realizing that actually God was going to do the changing mm. and I was going to be witness to it was something that really sort of grew me up a bit, I think. I went, I'm not expecting to love Nepal, and I realized after living there for five years that it was my home. Mm. I felt more at home in Nepal than I had anywhere. Is that as right? a missionary kid, yeah. What was and, it about um, Nepal? I don't know. <laughs> it just I don't felt know. right for you. Yeah, it did. Mm. It probably has a lot to do with the welcome and the acceptance that our Nepali church gave us. Mm -hmm. We chose a church that was just out of town, that was up a hill in a poorer community, and we deliberately chose that church rather than one of the wealthier ones in town. And these people couldn't speak any English. <laughs> and mm. um, I, I would go up there every Thursday morning and sit and pray with the ladies before work. And... Um, and I was just, just humbled by their commitment to prayer. Mm. Like, their lives were so busy. The only time they had off was basically when they came to church. Wow. And just the way that they shared their lives with me, mm. it really made a huge impact yeah. on me. 
Yeah, I remember one day, and this links with, with why I was interested in trafficking, um, mm. I remember one day one of my close friends took me to her house to offer me tea and biscuits like they often used to do, and I was sitting mm. there chatting and practicing my Nepali, and she took out a photo album, and she showed me this photo album, and I was looking at all the people that I recognized, you know, much younger, because these photos were quite old, mm. and there was this one girl there, and I said, oh, who, who's that girl? And my friend said, oh, that's my sister, my older sister. I was like, oh, where does she live? Because I'd met most of mm-hmm. the sisters yeah. in this family. Mm-hmm. The pastor, he had had 12 children and only six of them survived. Mm. And um, one of the six was my friend. And I said, well, where's this one? I haven't met her. And she said, oh, she, she's not here anymore. I said, well, what do you mean she's not here anymore? And she said, well, um, she went to the river one day to wash her clothes and she never came back. Mm. And um, I remember hearing that story and just going... What happened to her? And the family had no answers. They'd never received any answers, even though this had happened a number of years ago. And um, she could have been swept away by the river. Sometimes in the monsoon, the river gets mm-hmm. really, really powerful. But I'd been hearing a lot of stories about trafficking. And I mm. thought to myself, what if, what if she had been trafficked? What if she had been sold into slavery mm. in India, in a brothel in India? Would she ever be able to come home? What would that be like? And I think it was that afternoon and those questions that really got me thinking about what is the situation of trafficking in Nepal? And I started mm-hmm. doing a lot of research, and that was where the idea for my, my novel, Out of the Cages, came from. The novel opens with two girls going to the river to wash their clothes. I took that idea, hmm. literally, yeah. and I just tried to see where what could have happened. Now, did you ever find out what happened to her sister? No, no. So that no, continues they, they to be a mystery to this day. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I hope that she wasn't trafficked. I, mm. I, I hope that it was a natural disappearance, mm. even though it's still sad for the family to have no answer. Yeah, no closure after all these years. Yeah. But there are, there are thousands, tens of thousands of, of girls and young women who are trafficked out of Nepal mm-hmm. in, all around the world. And mm. in Nepal, it was something that I, I bumped into a little bit more frequently. So you heard of stories where people just disappear and they've yeah. been trafficked? Yeah, we had another young friend of ours who, her and another girl, they used to sort of look after our children Mm -hmm. um, when our children were small. And um, they sort of just disappeared. Wow. They said they had a job and they just disappeared. No one really knew where they went. Hmm. And then after about six months, they came back. And one of the girls cut all contact with us and cut all contact, refused to come and see us, refused to talk to us. The other one talked to us, but would never tell us about what she had been doing while mm-hmm. she was in India. Mm. So it was just, just bumping into stories like that yeah. and reading about them in the paper. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a really, really sad issue. Mm. After we came back to Australia, I, was, I had the opportunity to do a, a research trip over to India in 2013. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that trip just really exposed to me the the complexity of trafficking. Like mm. it's the it's the fastest growing sort of industry in terms of economic growth is the sale of people mm. because you can sell a weapon and, and and it's sold and you use it and it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can sell an electronic item and it wears out. Mm. But you can sell a person over and over and over and over again mm. and keep making money. I mean, yeah. in practical terms, yes, but you know, it's horrific. That they're just Horrific, buying and exactly. selling people like objects. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, but it sort of explains why the industry continues to grow. Hmm. And, and so I thought, you know what, I want to write a novel about these kinds of issues. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that. You write for children. Yeah. This is not a children's topic. That's not the yeah, first no, thing that comes to your mind not. when you're thinking about children's books. No. How did and, you do and it? And so right from the start of researching this particular novel, I knew it was going to be a young adult novel. So I was mm-hmm. aiming okay. for teenagers. Yeah. And the resulting novel is probably for upper upper teenagers, mm-hmm. um, mature teenagers. I'd go for 15 or 16 mm-hmm. up, depending on the child. Mm-hmm. I have had a 13-year-old read it, and apparently she really, really liked it. Mm. But yeah, I'd, I'd pitch it up a bit higher. So without giving too much of the story away, yeah, it tells the story of human trafficking. Yeah, so it's about these two little young Nepali girls, 11 and 12 years old, mm-hmm. who are trafficked into slavery. Wow. And the story picks up three years later after the river scene uh, with one of the girls and it's just the one mm-hmm. and she's in in a brothel and she's in a particularly unhealthy state mm-hmm. and she escapes and it's the story of how she pieces her life back together and how she deals with the memories of the trafficking mm-hmm. and whether she's got the courage to go home to Nepal or whether she wants to go and find her friend mm-hmm. um, that she was trafficked with so it's a story of healing yeah really. So it's full yeah. of hope. I mean, it could be very depressing, but it's full of hope and healing. Yeah, I deliberately wanted to show hope, and I wanted mm-hmm. to show that healing is possible. I wanted mm-hmm. to highlight the courage. Like, mm-hmm. um, I did meet uh, quite a lot of survivors during my research, and mm-hmm. although I didn't ask them all the nitty-gritty details of their story, I thought that, that wasn't appropriate for me to do. Mm-hmm. I was just so impressed by their courage mm-hmm. to be able to pick their lives up again and keep going. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, Australian... Young people can learn from that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if I can write a story that shows them some of the things that are going on in the world, but in a way that inspires them to want to make a difference. Yeah, well, that's um, what I was going to get to next. You don't want people just to read these books, but to be called to action. So what is the call to action from this book? Yeah. Well, I think the feedback I'm getting from people is that they read the book and then they say, what can I do? Mm-hmm. They're immediately wanting to do something. And so I think education and awareness is one of the huge things. Mm-hmm. Trafficking thrives in secret. So the mm-hmm. more that we can talk about it, the more that we can act knowing about it yeah. is one of the main things. So at the end of the book, I've listed a couple of organizations that people can look up, International Justice Mission. They do a lot of awesome work. And so being able to partner with those kinds of organizations, but also just practical things like find out where your tea and coffee is made and who's mm-hmm. making it. Hmm. Um, at Easter time, trying to find fair trade Easter eggs is really hard work. Hmm. But it shouldn't be. Like, we shouldn't be wanting to eat Easter eggs that are made by children who are forced to pick cocoa pods day after day after hmm. day. And, and, you know, you said that this isn't stuff for children, but I, I believe it is. Hmm. <laughs> because children get the fact that they should be able to play. They get hmm. the fact they should be able to go to school. Hmm. And when you tell them that there are children out there who have to work so they can have a chocolate bar. Kids are horrified, Hmm. and they want to do something. Hmm. And I remember being that 10, 11-year-old kid who wanted to do something about the world. Yeah. And so I write resources to equip kids to do something. Now, do you have any stories of one of your readers being inspired to do something after reading your book? I have a story of of, um, one of my early books, One of my early books is called The Back Leg of a Goat, and it was published by Christian Focus Publications in the UK. And Mm -hmm. it's a story about a girl who's who's got like a gift catalogue. You know those gift catalogues that charities have Mm -hmm. where you can buy like a goat 
for someone oh, yeah, in another yeah. country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this book, this girl wants to buy a goat, but she doesn't have enough money. And um, I remember once I was, yeah, I'll, I'll humbly admit, I was Googling myself <laughs> <laughs> to try and see if I could find some reviews because a lot of children don't yeah. tell authors what they think of their books. Yeah. And I found this review from a lady in the UK whose daughter had read The Back Leg of a Goat. Because in the, in the story, the, the characters put on it like a recycled dress-up parade and raise money to buy goats. So this girl in the UK was so inspired after reading this story that she and her friends got together and put on a dress-up parade and invited all their neighbours to come and they raised money to, to buy something for um, people in another country. So wow. Like, yes. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> got to be very fulfilling as an author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to be able to see that I've been able to communicate the ideas in a way mm-hmm. that captures children's imagination and equips them to be able to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the important thing. It's not just about information. Mm-hmm. It's about equipping them with ideas, with tips, with strategies with which they can respond mm-hmm. to the things they learn about. And I think what I really want to do is make sure that my books are full of hope, mm-hmm. that they point to God's kingdom and how it, it ripples into society. I want kids to be able to see that, that God's kingdom makes a difference and that we can make a difference because God already does. Amen. Thank you so much, Penny, for sharing with us today. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with author Penny Reeve who has written several books for children and young adults with the intention of calling her readers to action and to engage in the world. One verse that has inspired Penny is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And now that we have been set free, we can literally help set others free as well. As we heard, Penny is helping her readers become informed and engaged in helping stop human trafficking. One organisation she recommends is the International Justice Mission. Penny says they fight trafficking and are working hard to end slavery. Their website is simply ijm.org.au. That's ijm.org.au. Another website she recommends to learn more about this topic is beslaveryfree.com. Once again, that's beslaveryfree.com. Finally, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Penny's own website that includes a short story for children that is free to download called Akosh and Pigeons. Penny's website is pennyreeve.com. That's pennyreeve, R-E-E-V-E, dot com. Well, thanks for joining us for Penny's inspiring story and call to action. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. So Dad was in jail for nine, ten months which is, you know, having to go to prison every week and go through all that rigmarole, it's a big thing. And it does bring, you know, going from, you know, a double-parent home to a single-parent home and, you know, mum was left to work full-time and, yeah, it was, it, it was a difficult time for us. When Wesley Leake was growing up in Queensland, his parents' business went bankrupt and his father ended up going to jail. This had a huge impact on his life, and years later, he had to come to grips with the feelings of unforgiveness he has had towards his father. We'll hear Wesley's story next time. The Story. Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.